You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future, but until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading this morning is from Philippians chapter 4 verses 21 to 23. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus, the brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good. Well, thank you so much, Josh. Let's pray before we turn our attention to this passage. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come now to study this passage and really to reflect on and remember all we've learned in the book of Philippians, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds by the power of your Holy Spirit, that as the scriptures are read and your word is proclaimed, we may hear with joy what you have to say to us today. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I love movies that are based on a true story. In fact, I hardly watch any other type of movies, and unfortunately, because of Netflix, I rarely finish other types of movies. But I always, when I'm captivated by a movie based on a true story, I always sit and watch the movie all the way to the end, even until the credits come to a conclusion. Now, why is that? Because movies based on a true story often end in the credits with the real-life photos of the characters and various historical details that fill in the blanks about what happened uh, subsequently in the life of the major characters. And in many ways, it's the credits that put a beautiful cap or summarize beautifully why this movie needed to be made. And when we see the personality of the characters and the images of the characters, it beautifully reminds us why the movie was worthy of being watched. Well, we're at the end of the book of Philippians, and it's tempting to just blitz through these last three verses. And in some ways, who could blame you? They're kind of a greeting with a blessing. But what I wanted to do is spend this morning reflecting on not just these three verses, but really the way they cap off and summarize all that we've learned in the book of Philippians, kind of all that Paul was teaching. I wanted to do this in part because the original recipients of this letter, the church in Philippi, would have heard word that there was a letter from Paul, and the elders or the deacons of the church would have stood in front of the church and read this letter from beginning to end. They may have read it twice. They would have reflected upon it for some time. And I kind of wanted to end our time in the book of Philippians, which has been so good to me, which has been such a joy to study, by recapping some of what we've learned, but especially by looking at the way Paul's conclusion matches much of his introduction and reinforces much of what is taught in this letter. Paul begins this letter by thanking the church in Philippi for their partnership in the gospel from the first day till now. He says that in chapter 1, verse 5. This letter in large part is a thank you note. You may remember Paul is sitting in jail And at this time, there's no three meals, there's no warm bed, there's no clothes, there's no access to running water. And in fact, the person sitting in jail, if they did not have an outsider being merciful to them and aiding them, they would die. The church in Philippi hears that Paul is in jail, they raise a a large sum of money, it seems, and they bring it to Paul to bless him and to take care of him during his time in jail. And he is responding to their gift with this thank you card of sorts, this long thank you letter. 
but he's not just thanking them for their gift. He's actually like a sports manager or a, a, a coach. Uh, he's actually more like sort of a manager at work. He's reminding them of this whole partnership they've had from the first day until now. This unique relationship that they've had as partners in this work of the ministry of Jesus Christ. And he's thanking them not just for their gift, but that they've been with him through thick and thin. And he was reminding them of the importance of this partnership and, the, and, and what this partnership is all about. So whether they face suffering in the future, whether more and more conflict arises within their church, that they not forget what they have been called to do, that this unique relationship that they have is a partnership in spreading the good news of the High King, Jesus of Nazareth. The way I want to look at these last three verses as Paul concludes this letter is by looking at the way he talks about the basis of the partnership that the church has with Paul, the devotion of this partnership, and finally the hope of this partnership. So first, let's talk about the basis of this partnership. What's the basis of this partnership? You know, last Sunday um, after church, you know, went home and in the evening, went out for a walk kind of later at night. And as I was walking down the Danforth, there was a mob of people walking and they were carrying this strange red, green, and white cloth and waving it around and they were yelling and cars were honking as they went by. Anytime you see a group of people doing something together, you ask, why are they together? What are they doing? Well, if you were a soccer fan or if you're British, you'll know that Italy won the Euros last week. Sorry to all the British attenders to Christchurch, Toronto. And on the basis of their love of soccer, on the basis of their common heritage, they had assembled together in this sort of partnership to celebrate what had happened on the field. Paul is ending this letter in a very unique way. It's unlike any of his other letters. In verse 21, he says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The way he says it in Greek is actually kind of pedantic. It's greet each and every saint. Greet all of them, the ones that are, uh, that are in Philippi, the saints in Christ Jesus. And then he says the brothers who are with him, assuming that he has a couple of uh, assistants and workers with him, they also greet the church in Philippi. Now, what is the basis for this partnership? What is the basis for the partnership and the relationship that the church in Philippi has with Paul? It's not a common ethnicity. It's not a common sport that their team won. Paul makes clear this letter, he says at the very beginning, is to the saints in Christ Jesus in Philippi. He says that in verse in the very beginning of the letter. And at the end now, he says, greet each and every saint in Christ Jesus. And then he sends greetings from the saints who are with him. What's the basis for this partnership between Paul and the church in Philippi that he wants to encourage in this letter? It's their status as saints in Christ. They all bear a common title. They are saints in Christ Jesus. Now, what's a saint? In our world, you hear saint and you think uh, heroes of the church, people for whom biographies are written, and certainly those are saints. Or maybe you hear saint and you think of our kind of offhanded way to talk about someone who has a servant's attitude. You know, she is a saint. He is a saint. He does. He is always at church. He is always picking up uh, after people. He is such a saint. When Paul talks about being a saint, though, he has very, very little in mind of behavior or virtue. He doesn't think of someone who will have a biography written about them. When Paul thinks of someone being a saint, he's thinking of someone who has this title who's distinguished from the rest of the world as set apart and holy as part of God's people. 
but they only have this identity in their relationship to Christ Jesus. There's nothing their behavior could do to make them saints. They are connected and joined up by baptism into the church, into the body of Christ. And so Paul is saying objectively to the young and the old, those who just started uh, attending the church and have joined in baptism, to those who are part of Paul's original uh, group of people who became Christians when he first came to the city, each and every one of them, those whose faith is thin and filled with doubts, to those who are elders and deacons of the church. He says all of them are saints by virtue of their connection to Jesus. This is the basis of their partnership. And Paul has said this over and over throughout this letter. In chapter 3, verse 12, he actually refers to the fact that Christ has made uh, Paul as someone who belongs to Jesus. Christ made me his own, as he says in 3, chapter 12. This idea of our bonding and our union with Jesus is, is deeply in the background of this basis of this partnership that Paul and the church in Philippi have. They are all people bonded to and united with Jesus Christ. The basis of our partnership is our common location. Our lives are located in Christ. Like the Italian fans running down the Danforth saying, we won, we won. Part of me wants to say, no, you didn't. You know, you didn't do anything. You've, you've eaten too much pasta, actually. Settle down. They did win. Their team won. And because their team won, they get to celebrate. We are, they are united to their team by virtue of their loyalties. And so, therefore, they celebrate. Christ has won. His victory on the cross is our victory. His sacrifice was accepted into heaven. He, in a human body, was received into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father. He was accepted. And now, because we are on a team with Him, because we are bonded with Him, we too are accepted before the Father. We are holy, saints, set apart. And we can only call each other saints so much as we see ourselves as united by faith to our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the common status. Saints, it makes us sisters and brothers unified together. This is the basis of the partnership. Paul says, greet every last one. Each individual in the church, young and old, new to the faith, old to the faith. They were all precious enough for Jesus to die. So please greet them and greet them as saints. I wonder, do you value God's people that way? Do you feel valued by the church this way? Do you know yourself to be a saint because of your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Do you Joy and, and with joy, gather together with God's people as much as possible because you want to be together with the people who are also bonded with Christ, fellow saints. Do you long to greet each and every one of them the way Paul does as he sits in prison? This is the basis of the partnership. And for a church that's in conflict, you remember Judea and Sanctiki were fighting about something that we don't know. Paul tells them to, to agree. Paul wants to remind them of their common identity. They are saints, and this is the basis of the partnership they have. They're saints in Christ Jesus, and therefore they can learn to get along. But now let's talk about the common devotion. What is the devotion of this partnership? What, are, what is this partnership devoted to? We get this puzzling statement in verse 22 that theologians or Bible commentators have wrestled through, historians have wrestled through, where Paul says, the saints greet you, especially those in the household of Caesar. Then Paul says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. 
You remember that Philippi was a Roman colony, and they were quite proud to be Roman. In the middle of sort of being surrounded by Greek lands, they had Roman architecture, Roman customs. And when Paul says the saints in the household of Caesar greet you, I don't think he's simply name-dropping, although he is in some senses. I think he's doing more. Because he then follows up with this blessing using this politically loaded and weighted phrase, the Lord Jesus Christ. The title Lord was a title that Caesar took for himself. You may remember Caesar Augustus was the adopted son of Julius Caesar. And in in a time of of civil war, in a time of, um, you know, a time in which there had been much chaos in the empire, Caesar rescued the world. He, in some senses, brought salvation to the world, or so the civic religion of Rome said. He ended the civil wars. He brought in a time of prosperity. He built an unbelievable road structure and brought safety of travel. He brought in peace. He brought in tremendous justice. And because of that, he took upon the title Lord or Master, sort of ruler over all. It was stamped on every Roman coin. And even before he dies, people began to worship him as Savior, as Lord, as Master. And Paul is saying to Caesar, but also to people very, very, very impressed with their Roman citizenship. He's saying not so fast. Jesus is Lord. And he's saying lest you wonder whether that's a true statement, even the people in Caesar's household know that. Here Paul is reminding us of the poem that's in the middle of chapter 2, or at the beginning of chapter 2, that really is a foundation for this letter, where Paul writes, though Jesus was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, And in human form, he humbled himself even lower. He was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And because of that, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name above all other names. So at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess, what? That Jesus is Lord. This is the common devotion that binds together the church in Philippi and Paul. We know that one day every knee will bow, every nation will bow the knee, not to Caesar as Lord, but to Jesus as Lord. Paul remind, why does Paul want to remind them of their devotion to Jesus as Lord? Well, don't forget, he has made clear in this letter that they are engaging in some kind of conflict, some kind of persecution. And we know from the book of Acts that the, the church is very foundation included conflict and persecution. And it's tempting in the midst of conflict, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of people's businesses suffering to say, Caesar is the one who has the power to give us the good life. Caesar is the one who has the power to ruin our life. He's the one who's ultimately in charge, at least for temporal matters. And Paul is saying, don't think that for a minute. Caesar might have many people who bow the knee to him and call him Lord, but more will bow the knee to Jesus. More will. Now, why does that matter today? Paul's writing to the church maybe 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. He's writing with confidence that more will bow the knee to Jesus than to Caesar. And at the time, there was probably more who called Caesar Lord than Jesus. But where are we 2,000 years later? How many people do you know who bow the knee and say, Caesar, that Roman ruler is Lord? That would be absurd 
That would be unheard of. And yet, how many do we know right now are willing to bow the knee and say, Jesus is Lord. He's ultimately the master. He's the one in charge. Listen, no one will dethrone our Lord. Whether it be Facebook mobs, drunk on cancel culture, whether it be HR departments concerned about the ethic of Jesus' kingdom, whether it be governments trying to prohibit the church from gathering, whether it be philosophical ideologies trying to uh, dethrone Jesus from his throne, whether it be social trends that push our kids further and further from understanding the gospel and seeing it as credible, don't kid yourself. These things will not be able to dethrone the Lord Jesus Christ. People will not be bowing the knee to Facebook mobs forever. Their days are numbered. There's no government in the world that's worked harder to try to stop people from bowing the the knee to Jesus than China. And right now, I guarantee there are more Christians in China worshiping than we have in Canada. Listen, Jesus is Lord. He was the Lord 2,000 years ago, and He will be the Lord in 2,000 more years. So what's the worst that could happen? You could suffer for your Lord now. But Paul has already made the case that that will only bind you with and bond you more closely to our Lord Jesus Christ. This suffering won't be in vain. This is the common devotion of our partnership. Jesus Christ, who is the Lord, He is the Master. But Paul wants to end finally with the hope of this partnership. And the hope is found in verse 23 uh, with this grand blessing. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul is clearly here giving a blessing over the church. He's praying that grace would cover and protect and guide and build the church up. Remember, Paul is thinking of the grace that transformed him from a persecutor of the church. Someone who permitted and oversaw the murder of of the first followers of Christians, someone who is terrorizing the church, the grace that came into his life and invaded his life and now has made him a leader in the church, the one who is spreading the church to the Gentiles. This grace that transformed his life, Paul is saying, may it now sustain you as you stand in one spirit. This grace, the kindness of God, the undeserved forgiveness, may it bring restoration to your church. May it be your constant cause for rejoicing. This is how Paul concludes the letter with this blessing. The Yale theologian Miroslav Volf tells the story of one of his friends when he grew up in the former Yugoslavia. He calls her Esther. She was abandoned by her alcoholic mother at the age of nine, and she had vivid memory of her mom leaving her and she hated her mother. She vowed that she would never reach out to her, that she would never love her. She vowed that she would never even so much as want to find her. But years later, after Esther had her own children, she was overwhelmed with a desire to find her mother, and she eventually did. And when the day came for Esther to meet her mother face to face, Esther saw her mother And immediately she begged her mother for forgiveness for all the years she did not call, for all the years she did not write, and for her refusal to search and be connected with her mother. And after this confession, Esther waited for her mother to respond, and her mother gave her something like forgiveness. But Esther wanted deep down for her mother to acknowledge what she had done for abandoning her. It was the elephant in the room, and it never came about. Esther's mom continued to talk to her and talk about her life. 
But it didn't, but Esther couldn't contain herself anymore. She came to this meeting wanting to be forgiven, but so desperately also wanting to extend forgiveness to her mother. And so she broke into the conversation with her mother, weeping, and said, Mother, I want you to know that I love you. I turned out okay. I do not hold anything against you. And upon hearing these words of grace, Esther's mother broke. She wept and wept, and all night said, I'm sorry. I am so sorry. I am so, so sorry over and over and over again. Guilt had a stronghold on Esther's mom. She couldn't even come to terms with what she had done, but grace from Esther broke in and broke the guilt. Listen, a greater move has happened on our earth. God saw his rebellious daughters and sons on this earth. He saw all of our rejection and he met all of our rejection with all of his love. And in love, he pursued us and he moved towards us. And unlike Esther, he had done no wrong. He had committed no offenses, never once doing anything that could offend the relationship to his sons, to his daughters, to his creation. But in love, he moved towards his creation so much so that though he, being a being different from us, sent his son to take on flesh, to be a human being, a real human being, bonded and united to his divine body. And this son was sent to rescue all of his children, to provide forgiveness and relationship. And God made this move to send his son when no one wanted it. And on that cross... As the Son gave His life to cover the debts of all of our sins, as He offered His life as a perfect sacrifice, the earth was utterly silent. There was a deep refusal on the part of humanity to acknowledge any wrongs. There was not one of God's children at the foot of the cross seeing this grace and asking for forgiveness. There was no one there repenting. The only one who acknowledges something extraordinary is happening is one of His executioners, a centurion, who breaks the silence. But slowly but surely, that act on the cross, that act of grace sank in. God moved towards us in love when we didn't want Him to. When we were in denial that we needed Him to. When we were making excuses to keep our distance. When we had no desire to repent. He moved towards us in love, and this is grace. And this grace has come into our world and it's transformed each and every one of us who see the cross and realize what God has done for us and admit what we previously couldn't admit. And this is Paul's hope. Remember how he starts the letter in verse 6 of chapter 1. He who began a good work in you, he will bring it to completion. And he's going to do it the same way he started, by grace. This is how Paul ends the letter. The grace of Christ is here. May it be among you. May it always be with your spirit. As we wrap up this series, why is the book of Philippians such an a, a easy read for Christians? Why has it provided so much joy and hope? Why is it such a fun book to read as you come upon it in your one-year Bible reading plans? Because we realize the letter to the church in Philippi is a letter about a partnership. And it's a partnership between Paul and this church in serving the Lord Jesus Christ. But the letter is also an offer. An offer for us here in Toronto in the 21st century to be faithful partners and advancing this good news that Jesus is Lord to every house in our city until all of our city is joining and rejoicing in what God has done for us. Grace is broken into our world. 
Jesus is Lord. Let's come together as partners and join the Apostle Paul and join the saints in Philippi and seeing this grace spread out and transform our whole city. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristChurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristChurchToronto.ca.